Hello everybody, I'm, I'm Tony Barnett. Welcome to this series of lectures. Um, I have a couple of announcements before we start. I have an announcement on behalf of the LSE People and Planet Society who are holding their annual fundraising auction tomorrow on World AIDS Day in the underground bar below the three tons. Uh, they say there will be a range of items to bid on including the chance to be part of a live recording on XFM. Who knows what XFM is? Put your hands up if you know. Ah, <laughs> uh, obviously a generational thing. Uh, an exclusive chiffon cover-up of, of Sherry Blair's. Would that be... How many people would bid for that? No? Okay. The chance to have dinner with a top LSC academic at their private club. Yep. Who's in the market for that? Mm, that's going to be cheap then. Um, as well as a host of signed books, records, photos, blah, blah, blah. All money raised will go to Crusade, a charity which works both in Africa and the UK, providing support for people who suffer from HIV, I don't like the word, who have HIV and AIDS, and funding projects to prevent the spread of the virus and research into possible vaccines and a cure. The event will take place from 6 to 7.30 and all are very welcome for fun, food and fundraising. Right, the second thing to draw to your attention is this flyer which is in the lecture theatre. Um, this lecture this evening is the first lecture in a series this year and it's funded by the Department for International Development, some of whom are sitting here to whom we are very, very grateful indeed. Um, and it's on, the series of lectures is on HIV AIDS, other infectious diseases and reproductive health. And the next lecture after this one will be on January the 10th and it's Dr. David Nabarro who is the UN person responsible for confronting the pandemic of influenza, of, or the, the pandemic of influenza which is threatening and he will be talking on January the 10th in the new theatre at 6.30. On February the 6th, the politics of AIDS exceptionalism. A few years ago, Peter Piot, the head of UN AIDS, was here and argued that AIDS was an exceptional event. And Alex Duval will be talking about why that may or may not be the case. You will also, many of you, know Alex Duval from his work on Darfur, and I'm sure he'll be prepared to take the odd question on Darfur after that lecture. That's on February the 6th. On February the 12th, in the old theatre at 6.30 at 6 in the evening, Professor Michel Kazachkin, who is head of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria, will be speaking here on access to prevention and treatment of AIDS in the developing world, evidence for hope. And as the final lecture in this series, on March the 11th at 6.30 in the Hong Kong Theatre, Professor Sir Roy Anderson, who is probably the most distinguished epidemiologist in Britain and will be rector of Imperial College as of about that time, March next year, will be talking more widely on infectious disease pandemics, social and economic factors in the development of public health policy. And for those of you who are students at LSE and working on all kinds of interesting and obscure things, infectious diseases is not widely worked on as an issue in the social sciences. I think it should, and you might want to think about it. However, uh, this evening we are very, very fortunate to have with us um, Helen Epstein. 
Helen Epstein has had an extremely distinguished, if unconventional, career. She's an extremely distinguished writer, but she started off as a molecular biologist. She knows the real science. And she's a lapsed molecular biologist. She writes very widely. She's published in Granta. She writes regularly for the New York Review of Books. She appears in all kinds of newspapers, the New York Times Magazine. She did her PhD, uh, she did her master's degree just up the road at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She did her PhD at Cambridge. She is um, an extremely acute observer of the HIV AIDS epidemic and she's just published the book The Invisible Cure, Africa, the West and the Fight Against AIDS. Tonight, you're very privileged because that book will be on sale downstairs after the lecture at the specially reduced price. You can block your ears, those of you who have a copy already, at the specially reduced price of £10. How many people paid more than that? Oh, yes. Tonight is the night when you can buy another copy because Helen has very kindly said that she will sign copies afterwards. So, without any further jokes and asides... Helen, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks, <clears throat> thanks a lot, um, Tony, and uh, thanks for coming, everyone. I'm going to try to condense um, as much also here. I'll stand here. I'm going to try to condense as much of this uh, book as possible into the next 35 minutes or so. Um, so let me start. Uh, the book is about this uh, region of East and Southern Africa, shown here, um, which um, is home to about 3% of the world's population, but about half of all cases of HIV infection occur here um, in the, uh, globally each year. And I'm going to discuss both the, uh, what some of the likely reasons for this might be and make some proposals about what might be done about it in addition to the many things that are being done already. Um, when the AIDS epidemic first emerged in the early 1980s, it seemed to be largely confined to certain risk groups, um, injecting drug users, gay men, commercial sex workers, and their partners, and so on. And this is still the case in most of the rest of the world. But here in this region, everyone's at risk, from cabinet ministers to the women who sell tomatoes on the street. Um, to illustrate this, Mark Shields of U.S. Agency for International Development um, uh, did a sort of modeling exercise uh, where he asked, who has HIV in Zambia? This is from 2002, and these are his um, estimates. As you can see um, here, according to him, more than 90% of new HIV infections are in um, not, are people who are sort of in this red area. They're not in any typical high-risk group. Um, the, the triangle there is the fraction of new infections that are in commercial sex workers, their partners, and other kind of itinerant, rootless men, such as uniform personnel, long-distance truck drivers, and so on. Um, so, um, so what's putting all these people at risk? Uh, there's a very uh, large amount of evidence, a growing amount of evidence, that suggests that what's going on here has little to do with typical promiscuous sexual behavior in the sense of lots of partners. Um, here's some evidence for that. In, um, hang on, oops. In, the, um, 
early 1990s, a, uh, a number of surveys of sexual behavior were carried out around the world, and here's just a summary of three of them, which were carried out in Uganda, which at that time eight, had an 18% HIV prevalence rate. That's 18% of um, adults in the country were estimated to be HIV positive. And also in Thailand around the same time where the HIV infection rate in adults was about 2% in the U.S. where it was 1%. And as you can see, um, among the many questions that were asked on this survey were how many uh, partners have you had in your life? And the fraction of those who said 10 or more is shown here. And as you can see, the Uganda, there's really no correlation between the HIV rate and the fraction of people with more than 10 partners. Um, U.S., uh, there have been other studies that sort of uh, corroborate this. It seems as though people in the U.S., for example, are more likely to say they've had more than 10 lifetime partners than people in Uganda um, and in other African countries also say they have. And the winners are these men in Thailand, 65% um, of whom say they've had more than 10 lifetime partners. And that's um, probably because there's kind of a tradition of um, guys going out a few times a year to a brothel just to sort of have a, a blowout or so. And that um, seems to allow them to rack up a large number of sexual partners, but doesn't really get you much in the way of an HIV infection. I mean, the situation in Thailand is bad. I don't mean to minimize it at all, but it's a very different thing from what's happening in East and Southern Africa. Um, and it's also, for reasons I'll discuss, easier to fight the Thai epidemic, too. Um, there's... Um, and, um, on the other hand, it seems as though men in Africa are not so likely to visit sex workers on a regular basis, even typically those typically considered to be very high risk. Here's uh, some results of studies that were conducted in Carltonville, South Africa, which is a big gold mining area. There are lots of mines there, lots of um, men coming and going uh, from the rural areas to the mines and working there. And also, Masero Lesotho, which is um, a country that sends a lot of the miners to, to Carltonville. Um, HIV rates in both places staggeringly high, between, say, 20 to 30, 40 percent or so. And yet, when these men were asked on these independent surveys, um, have you visited a commercial sex worker in the past year? The fraction of men who said yes was extremely low, below 5%, just about everywhere, and um, well below that as well, as you can see in the third row. Um, so um, um, it's not that these men are not having sexual relationships. It's just that commercial sex workers don't seem to be their first choice. So what's, um, what's going on? What... What um, I and a number of others think is that it has um, less to do with the numbers of sexual partners that people have than it does with the um, fact that people in this region have a greater tendency than people elsewhere to have a relatively small number, perhaps two or three long-term partners at a time. Um, in other words, a man may have a wife and a girlfriend and the girlfriend may have another partner and so on and he may have other partners. And as I'll, I'll explain in a minute, this creates a type of sexual network that's highly conducive to the rapid spread of HIV, even when the absolute number of partners is low. Um, but first, some evidence that that is possibly what's going on. This is um, back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the World Health Organization commissioned a series of sexual behavior surveys all over the world. And um, 
it, they were collected in a book chapter. Uh, it was published in 1995. And if you flip through it, the African, flip, flip through and look at the charts, the sites where the study was conducted um, uh, are, are, are listed there. And Africa doesn't really stand out in this chapter anywhere. The age of sexual debut is roughly the same all over the world in the late teens. Um, numbers of sexual partners, as we've discussed, isn't so high. Condom use um, isn't particularly uh, low compared to other developing countries. But one thing that did stand out in that study, um, in that uh, compilation of studies, was, was, was this, or at least struck me, was this one chart here, which shows the fraction of people who um, said that in addition to their spouse or regular partner, they had another regular partnership that had lasted more than a year. Um, and as you can see, the top, the, the top site is Rio de Janeiro, and then the others, there's Thailand, Sri Lanka, Singapore, Manila, which are all Asian sites. And the fraction of people who say yes to that question is relatively low, whereas in the African sites, Lusaka, Zambia, Tanzania, Lesotho, Kenya, Cote d'Ivoire, um, the fraction of men and women who say that they do have more than one long-term partnership is quite high. The, the men are in blue, women are in, in red. Um, and as you can see in Lesotho, more than half of men say they have more than one ongoing relationship. This is from um, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but uh, there's not that much evidence that it's changed. Okay. Um, it's tricky, obviously, to talk about this because it seems to be making rather um, sweeping generalizations about the sexual behavior of an entire continent, and that's a reasonable criticism. Um, and there is enormous variation from country to country, even from village to village all over Africa in sexual norms and behaviors. However, in its broadest contours, there does seem to be... Um, and a growing number of studies are confirming this, that there's a kind of, um, uh, in, a, in the most simplistic sense, that this pattern does seem to be showing up in a lot of places, um, although much more needs to be done on the, the, the details of these relationships. Um, in some societies, the pattern of multiple long-term concurrent partnerships was in uh, some respect even traditionally institutionalized. For example, in the... Maasai tribe of um, East Africa, namely Kenya and Tanzania, um, shown here. Men are, um, I, I'm going to describe their uh, sort of lives, but this is not to single them out, but simply that they've been extremely well studied by anthropologists and others, and so a lot is known about their way of life. Um, but this is not um, their, this, in this broadest contours, this, their um, patterns of behavior are not unique. Um, but in this society, men are traditionally polygamous, and they take on additional wives as they get older and accumulate wealth, usually in the form of cattle. So a relatively old patriarch might end up with five wives of progressively younger ages, and the youngest might even be a teenager. Meanwhile, the young men, who, who don't yet have enough cattle to use as bride price and who therefore can't marry, are segregated into so-called warrior age bands. Um, where they're sent into the forest to hunt lions and get circumcised and um, do other manly things, which serves to prepare them for the future. Um, and also the, the system sort of serves to keep the younger men away from the older men's wives. 
But sometimes, indeed quite often, a young man will sneak back into the village at night and sleep regularly with one of the younger brides. Um, and no one speaks of this. And if a child is born, she belongs to the husband, not to the girl's boyfriend. But everyone knows what's going on. Um, and this is just one example of how such a system might promote the spread of HIV. Um, here we have the elder. Oops. There's the, the elder there with the staff. Yeah, there was one. This is, this is the elder. He has three wives. Um, this woman, that one, and that one. She has a boyfriend. We'll see if one yeah, of them Helen, becomes Helen. infected. Ah, great. Okay. If one of them becomes infected, uh, say he does somehow, um, the virus will spread very rapidly to everyone. Um, Okay. Um, anyway, this kind of formal polygamy um, used to be quite common in much of this region, um, but it's becoming, it's actually dying out for economic and other regions. Um, however, there's still a lot of informal polygamy going on, and there's a whole slang vocabulary for it right across the continent. In Zimbabwe, men refer to their small houses in Francophone countries. It's the deuxième bureau or the second office. South African people refer to their roll-ons because they keep them hidden under their arms. These relationships are generally long-term and very different from the impersonal one-off encounter you have with a prostitute. But there's often a transactional element to them. Um, uh, and the transactions generally are not just about material support. A man may support his girlfriends and so on and his wives, but they also symbolize commitment um, so it's very important to distinguish these kinds of transactions from, from um, the sort of cold transaction of, of just cash for sex that you have with a prostitute. Anyway, long-term concurrent relationships occur everywhere, obviously, but they're less common, it seems, uh, surveys suggest, outside of Africa. For example, in the West, the prevailing pattern is one of serial monogamy, where people have one long-term partner at a time with whom they remain faithful for months or years, sometimes even decades, but then break up and move on to someone else. You can rack up a lot of partners that way, too, but it's actually a system that's a lot safer when it comes to HIV, as the following movie, I hope, illustrates. This was a, prepared, a little cartoon prepared by Stuart Parkinson of Population Services International, which I think explains this pretty well. Here's a typical... Um, um, long-term concurrency network, um, very schematized. Uh, as you can see, these are the, the squares are men, circles are women, and uh, these people are kind of linked up to each other through these long-term stable relationships. Nobody is having tons of partners. This guy's having the most. He has four ongoing relationships. But a lot of people here are, are, are faithful. They're not having very many. You know, they just have one or two. Um, but look what happens when we introduce HIV into the system. Um, one guy gets infected somehow, whether from a sex worker, blood transfusion, or anything, and then suddenly uh, he transmits right away to his one partner, and then she transmits to his, uh, her other partner. And then before you know it, the thing is spread through the entire network very quickly. If we have a system of serial monogamy, um, which is um, the alternate in overly simplified terms. Um, here we have everyone divided up into couples, but they switch around. Um, and one guy gets infected somehow, just as before. He transmits to his girlfriend. But the virus doesn't get any traction because there's no network there to sustain its spread. 
and it won't spread anywhere else outside of that relationship until these people break up and move on to other people. Um, so as you can see, there's all this bed hopping going on in the background, but the virus doesn't really spread much. So, um, um, in, um, in 1997, Martina Morris, who's now at the University of Washington, showed mathematically that all other things being equal, HIV will spread 10 times faster through a population practicing long-term concurrency compared to one practicing serial monogamy, even if both uh, populations have the same number of people and the same total number of relationships. The average number of partnerships per person you need to get a full-blown epidemic in the concurrency group is less than two, so this is a very, very powerful effect. One thing Martina Morris didn't include in her model was the effect of viral load, which probably makes long-term concurrency even more dangerous than she thought it was. And that's, um, oops, let's just go through this one. Okay. Um, the x-axis here is, uh, is time. This, is, uh, this illustrates the concentration of virus in the blood of a newly infected person over time. So the x-axis is time, and the y-axis is the concentration of virus in the blood, um, which corresponds basically to how transmissible the virus is and how likely it is to spread during a given sex act. Um, right after infection, the virus replicates rapidly in the blood, and viral load rises very high, and transmission is very <coughs> likely. But after the first month or so, the immune system finally kicks in and starts to fight the virus, and the viral load then uh, falls to a very low level, and transmission is much less likely during this period. It can still happen, but it takes a lot more exposure to actually get infected. So um, this makes concurrency even more dangerous because people are having regular sexual relationships with each other within, um, say, a few weeks or a month um, that a man with two girlfriends, say, will infect both of them very likely. And... Um, they will then infect their other partners and so on. Whereas if our serial monogamous gets infected, he'll pass it to his girlfriend at the moment, but if, as long as they stay together for six months or a year or so, um, um, by the time they break up and move on to other people, their viral load will have fallen um, and they're much less likely to transmit. Um, just as an aside, polygamy is also common in the Middle East and in West Africa, but HIV rates are much lower there. This is probably because male circumcision is near universal in these cultures, and we know that sharply cuts the risk of HIV transmission. In fact, this is probably why um, HIV rates are actually pretty low in the Maasai, who I showed earlier. Only about 5% um, of Maasai adults are HIV positive, according to studies I've seen. Um, because they also practice male circumcision. In addition, in the strict Muslim societies of the Middle East, you may have men with multiple concurrent partnerships, but women's sexual behavior tends to be under very strict surveillance, and therefore the networks just aren't linked up. So if a man gets infected, his wives might get infected, but the virus won't spread from there. Um, the implications of the male circumcision findings seem obvious. We need to make sure that safe, affordable, non-coercive male circumcision services are available to all men who want them. But even where male circumcision is near universal, you can still have a quite high HIV rate of, um, say, 5% or so. And we may never get to that point in East and Southern Africa because some men won't want it. So behavior change remains the best weapon for now in the absence of a vaccine. But how do you do it? We've been trying to tell people to change their behavior for 20 years, and the message seems to be falling on deaf ears, by and large. So what do you do? 
Um, well, I'd start by looking at this picture, which shows um, back to our concurrency network. And there are, I think, two implications of this system. To me, it says, um, the first is that these are long-term relationships based on affinity and trust. And so it's going to be hard to get everyone to use condoms consistently. Um, it's, it's very difficult to do that. As Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, said to everyone's dismay at the 2004 Bangkok AIDS conference, you can't condomize the whole world. He annoyed a lot of people when he said that, but he was right. Condoms are important, but people use them with sex workers and in casual relationships. Consistent condom use is a very hard behavior to maintain in a long-term relationship. There's actually an article in a Ugandan newspaper earlier this year about this one couple in the whole country that used condoms throughout their 14-year relationship. And this was considered national news. Um, this is important because um, studies show that inconsistent condom use is actually uh, not very protective. Um, just as it is a very good method of family planning. It's not that condoms don't work, but that people uh, get, eventually get exposed anyway. Um, a second thing this drawing says to me is that a lot of people at risk here are faithful anyway. Um, so um, they're faithful already, and even if they aren't faithful to one, they're faithful to two or maybe three. And these relationships are stable and long-term and based on powerful social and economic ties, and it can be very hard to break them. So telling everyone to abstain or be faithful has its limitations, too. Um, so what do you do about this? Um, one thing you can do is look at what happened in places where the epidemic did turn around. And the two best-known cases are the gay community in the United States in the 1980s and um, Uganda in the 1980s and early 1990s. In both places, there was a massive collective shift in sexual norms. It was like everyone moved together. It wasn't an individual thing. And I really think it had to be that way because sex is complicated. It involves more than one person. So for behavior to change, people have to get together and talk about it and figure out what to do. That's why social mobilization is so important, but it's also why HIV prevention is so difficult. Public health doesn't even have a name for this, let alone a recipe for programming it. Um, if we first go to the gay men, um, almost as soon as the first news bulletins about a new disease affecting gays came out in 1991, this huge social movement got underway. Um, here's the AIDS quilt, um, which is absolutely vast. It was, um, I'm sure a lot of you have seen it before, but it, it just shows how indefatigable these, these men were. Gay men and their friends came together and they talked to each other, they took care of each other, they argued about bathhouses and condoms and modes of non-penetrative sex. And if you go into the AIDS section of any library, you'll find a wall of literature that came out of the epidemic at that time poems, plays, memoirs. It was like a mass conversation. A lot of you will remember it, and some of you may have participated in it. During this period, the incidence of HIV infection fell by some 80%. This was partly attributable to condom use, but partner reduction was at least as important, if not more so, as illustrated here. This is from a study uh, conducted in San Francisco on gay men, um, and it shows the fraction of men who had multiple anal sex partners in the past six months between 1984 on the left and 1987. And as you can see, there was a steep decline in the fraction of men who reported that. And it's likely modeling studies suggest that these behavioral changes actually began almost as soon as the news of the new disease came out in 1981. So the drop was probably even more significant. But the important thing wasn't what the men did, but that they knew where their risks were coming from. And they took obvious steps to protect themselves and their friends. 
They stopped going to bathhouses and they stuck to as few partners as they could and then later used condoms religiously, especially in casual relationships. Something similar happened in Uganda. Um, this shows the prevalence of infection in pregnant teenagers in Uganda during the 1990s. Um, and teenage pregnancy rates there are very, very high. Um, about 70% of um, 19-year-olds have had a child or are pregnant. So this is kind of representative of the incidence in general. Um, it's a, a rough estimate of that. Anyway, the HIV rate plum plummeted by 60% or so over the course of the decade. Um, and this was not due to increased abstinence because between 1989 or 1988 or so, the demographic and health surveys show um, in 1995 that there was very little change in the teenage pregnancy rate. In fact, it rose a little bit during this time. So it wasn't that the girls weren't having sex and it wasn't that they were effectively using condoms, but it must have been that they or their partners were having fewer other partners. And, there's, and, that, and that seems to be what people said they did on, on, on surveys. If, um, in 1995, another demographic and health survey suggested uh, asked people, what did you do to protect yourself from HIV? And by then, the HIV rate was down considerably. And these are what single people said. Most people said they delayed for sex or stopped sex or restricted to one partner. Relatively few uh, said they began using condoms. Um, and um, married people the same, um, even fewer, because condoms in marriage are very difficult to sustain. But um, most people said they either restricted, they restricted sex to one partner. Um, um, so this is uh, very similar to what the gays did. In fact, everywhere where HIV rates have fallen, there's been a decline in the fraction of people with multiple partners, so far anyway. The big news you may have heard this World AIDS Day is, um, is that the epidemic in some high prevalence countries besides Uganda may be falling, including Zimbabwe, Kenya, Malawi, Tanzania, Rwanda. Everywhere you see a similar pattern, declines in multiple partnerships. This is, um, if you just look here at uh, this middle one. There have also been, in Kenya, for example, there, oops, there's been a decline, but um, part of that is due to reductions in the fractions of young people who have ever had sex but there's also, um, and also um, here, declines in the fraction who say that they've had multiple partnerships, both males and females, between 98 and 2003. Um, condom use didn't change that much during this time in, in Kenya. Um, it was already quite high and had risen, had been rising throughout the decade. Um, ditto. Uh, similar changes in Zimbabwe. I'm not going to go into detail here, but also Malawi. By the way, these slides come from um, not only from me, but also from Daniel Halperin and Allison Hurling of Harvard University, um, Tanzania, Cote d'Ivoire, um, men and women, and Rwanda. There was a slight increase, even though there was a decline in HIV infection rates. But look how low the fraction of men with multiple partners is. It's only about 4 or 5 uh, percent, which is extremely low. Um, and that may explain why the HIV infection rate in Rwanda is about 3% nationally. It's very low for that region. Um, 
Um, back in the 1990s, Uganda was the only country to see uh, a decline in HIV infection rates. Elsewhere on the continent, the uh, rate of HIV infection was soaring um, just about everywhere else. Here's Kampala. This is uh, antenatal women um, showing the prevalence of HIV infection rate going down in the early 90s. But everywhere else, this is Botswana. Um, Blantyre and Malawi eventually began to fall, but KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, whoops, also went up, um, and Harare, Zimbabwe too. Um, so why didn't these declines in HIV infection rates occur sooner in other countries? I don't know, but I was in Uganda in the early 1990s, and what I remember is that everyone was talking about AIDS in highly personal ways. The epidemic might have been very different from the gay epidemic, but the response was remarkably similar. There were plays and vigils and marches and lots of private conversations. There was vigorous public debate about condoms and how men and women treated each other. And there was a lot of caring for orphans and the sick. Some of these care programs were supported by donors and churches, but some were programs at all. They were just people coming together to help each other and talk and so on. In the book, I quote a man who remembers this time saying, you just go over and, and take care of the kids, sweep the floor, just sit and talk to the patient. You couldn't just do nothing. And um, there was also, this was accompanied by a vibrant women's movement, which Uganda also already had for historical reasons. And AIDS fit right into their agenda. Women got together and challenged men's behavior. They marched against rape. They campaigned for increased school enrollment of girls and so on. And their efforts even led to changes in legislation. It was very much an African brand of feminism, by the way. There was even a Ugandan association of co-wives and concubines that policed the behavior of polygamous men to ensure they didn't endanger everyone in the family. Um, on the matter of gender relations, this was never properly measured, but there were reports that domestic violence also decreased during this time, which would make sense because researchers are finding that a great deal of the fighting that goes on between men and women in this region has to do with accusations of infidelity. So if you reduce infidelity, you might be able to kill two birds with one stone. Um, we'll never know why people in other African countries did not respond to AIDS in this way, but for a while I've wondered whether it might not have something to do with the fact that Ugandans, like the gay men, knew where their risks were coming from, and this made it possible to talk more openly about AIDS and respond pragmatically. They didn't know the word concurrency, but they did know that the virus was spreading through ordinary families and it wasn't just a problem for sex workers and truck drivers. Um, and this made it easier for people to admit that their own family members were infected. Um, of course, there was stigma, um, but by and large, AIDS was seen as a terrible disease that no one deserved. Um, Martina Morris, who did the modeling studies on concurrency that I talked about earlier, actually got her ideas from Ugandans. She'd gone out to Kampala in 1993 to do a survey of sexual behavior, and at the time she, like most people, assumed the virus was spreading through high-risk groups like prostitutes and truckers, and she wanted to measure the number of people in these groups and, and so on. Um, so she was presenting this plan to a group of Ugandan doctors, and in the middle of her lecture, one of them raised his hand and asked, can your model handle situations where people have more than one partner at a time? She said, no, the math is too difficult. The man walked out of the room. Chagrined, Martina finished her lecture, but afterwards the other Ugandan doctors told her that if she didn't include concurrent partners in her model, the whole exercise would be pointless. So she went back to the drawing board and in collaboration with another researcher made the model I described earlier. Um, 
Um, it so happens that back in 1986, seven years before um, Morris's fateful lecture, Ugandan health officials had designed their own HIV prevention program, which was actually informed by an implicit understanding that the virus was spreading through ordinary families and relatively ordinary relationships. The Ugandan campaign had two messages, mainly. One of them was zero grazing or love carefully, which was local slang, meaning basically try to stick to one partner, but at least avoid casual partners and bar girls and don't take on additional concurrent partners if you can avoid it. And the second message was everyone's at risk, not just immoral people, so-called, so don't point fingers. Um, what was going on in the rest of Africa? Well, I've been acting as self-appointed evaluator of donor-funded AIDS programs for some years, and no one, not everyone wants to thank me for doing this, but I um, would like to share some impressions that I've had. Um, one thing I've noticed is how many programs tend to divide people and fail to bring them together around AIDS, as I think needs to happen. Here, for example, is a poster from um, uh, a campaign to promote condoms in Botswana. Um, it shows um, uh, a picture of a basketball, a condom, and the slogan, even the best ballers take a safe dunk with it. And ads like this were meant to help reticent African populations talk more openly about sex, but it's possible to see how they might send the opposite message, associating AIDS with unruly others who misbehave and have lots of casual sex. There's another one in this series um, that I don't have a picture of, but it was the same sort of thing. And it had a picture of a red boxing glove and a condom and the slogan, it can take the fiercest punches. Um, this is, was posted in a country with relatively high rates of domestic violence and some really difficult gender problems. And I think it's possible to imagine how someone looking at such an ad might think, well, that's not me, I'm not a womanizer or a wife beater or a slut. Um, like everyone, Africans hold strong moral views on sex and have partly been shaped by centuries of blacks being told by whites that they're somewhere lower down on the evolutionary ladder and more subject to the basic animal drives. So this kind of ad could really um, turn people off and reinforce the incredible sense of shame and denial around AIDS that you see in Southern Africa. In the book, I describe going around on home-based care visits um, with a group um, in northern KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa in 2005 when they were trying to recruit patients for testing <coughs> HIV treatment. The area had the highest HIV rate in South Africa at the time, so 35% of adults were infected. Anyway, we went to all of these homesteads and sat with these really sick people, and nobody, not once, would say the word AIDS. They said they had ulcers or witchcraft. They all knew they had AIDS, and their relatives knew it, but as the home-based care counselors told me, it's the association with promiscuity and immorality. That's why they won't talk about it. Um, back in Uganda in around 1992, the Zero Grazing Program was gradually phased out and replaced by a program that emphasized condom social marketing similar to those in the rest of the region. But as the 90s wore on, officials began to worry because although the HIV infection rate in Uganda had fallen rapidly, in the early 90s, by the end of the decade, it had stopped falling. But instead of reviving the zero grazing campaign, the Ugandans getting their cue from the conservative Christian U.S. congressman who, who helped frame the prevention elements of the PEPFAR program, which some of you may have heard of, the U.S. Uh, government AIDS program, went whole hog and decided to mount an abstinence campaign, which sent a very different message. Here's a poster from that campaign. It says, um, I'm, she's saving herself for marriage. What about you? 
This um, campaign was accompanied by the emergence of a number of flamboyant Christian pastors, pastors who advocated strict abstinence until marriage and sermons in youth groups. And I met one of these guys once, and he was up in arms about a poster from another AIDS campaign, which actually never got off the ground. But I thought it was really good. I thought it was definitely a step in the right direction. And here's a poster from that campaign. Um, it says, Lucy's a wonderful girl. She's a good daughter. She's the best friend. She always makes her family proud, and she has HIV. Anyone can catch it. Anyone can prevent it. Um, I thought, um, anyway, the pastor that I was speaking to, he absolutely hated this poster. He said, proud indeed, I'd like to meet that girl's parents. The only way to get HIV is through promiscuity. We have to stamp it out, and so on and so on. Anyway, he and the AIDS activist groups in Uganda had a huge battle in the press, and I had to take the activist side because the abstinence message, like the condom ads, failed to convey the <coughs> crucial point that in Africa, AIDS is everybody's problem, not just something caused by promiscuous others. So if I can leave you with um, at least one main recommendation, there are many things that need to be done about AIDS, but one thing that's not being done or hasn't been done is, um, is people really don't understand these concurrency networks, and they need to understand them because um, they need to know where their risks are coming from. At the moment, um, a Ugandan colleague of mine was at a conference in September this year, and he gave a speech in which he talked about this multiple concurrent relationships theory in HIV to a group that included 15 African health ministers. They all said they'd never understood before why HIV rates in their countries were so high. If they don't know, I suspect they're not alone. Um, a lot of people complain. They say, this: what's the point of giving people information about concurrency? We know information alone doesn't change behavior. There are too many contextual factors such as gender inequality, poverty, and so on that constrain behavior and limit people's choices, especially women's choices. There's no question that this is true, but sometimes cultures do change, especially when people work together. Think how much our own culture has changed in the past 20 years, especially when it comes to gender relationships. Even gay men have changed. Now they're fighting for the right of marriage, an institution they once scorned. You know, I think the history of smoking has also discouraged the health promotion community. After all, the connection between smoking and cancer has been known since the 50s, but smoking rates began to decline significantly in the West only recently. And I suspect part of the reason they didn't fall faster is that for a long time people were given mixed messages about smoking. For example, that the evidence linking it to cancer wasn't that strong or that it wasn't that dangerous or that filters and low tar might be protective when in fact they aren't and smoking is incredibly dangerous. These messages were promoted by ta tobacco industry-funded scientists and also by respected entities such as the American Medical Association and the U.S. Public Health Service. And this may have made it easy for people to deny the risk they were taking or at least think, well, maybe um, smoking's dangerous, but so is crossing the road. Since the tobacco trials of the 90s, which exposed the company's phony science, and since governments started panicking, about the medical costs associated with smoking-related diseases and started mounting much clearer, more aggressive campaigns to get people to quit, smoking rates fell. Likewise, perhaps when people get the right messages about AIDS, they'll change, as Ugandans did in response to the zero grazing campaign, or as gay men did in response to early warnings from groups like Gay Men's Health Crisis, which at first encouraged partner reduction and only later promoted condoms. Um, it's not the whole answer to the AIDS crisis, but it might make a difference. And in any case, the World Health Organization recognized at its founding that access to health-related information is a human right. Um, 
So um, in conclusion, people always ask me, okay, so Uganda had a social movement and that's what made their AIDS program work. How do you generate a social movement? And I say one thing that always galvanizes people is a common enemy. Too many programs have divided people, HIV positive from HIV negative, moral from immoral, high risk from low risk, youth from elders, men from women. Such programs send the message that the enemy is people with AIDS. Ugandans and gay men knew early that the enemy was HIV itself. Helen, and we'll take some questions, and we have some roving microphones around here, so if people uh, want to make an, an intervention, please put up your hand, and when you speak, would you please say who you are and any particular uh, institutional or other association you might have, just as we have some kind of idea who, who you are. So, yes, please, up there. Hi, my name's Ed Harriman. I'm a journalist. I don't know much about it, but I believe that Bill Gates and Bill Clinton think they're doing a lot to help prevent AIDS in Africa and elsewhere. What do they think of your concurrence theory? <laughs> um, well, Bill Gates actually isn't working. Um, I'm not Bill Gates. Bill, Bill Clinton. Um, Bill Clinton is actually working mainly on treatment, mainly for children. Um, and, and adults as well. So he's actually stayed away from this whole issue, and there, there may be personal reasons for that. I don't know. But um, sort of how would, what slogan would he use? I suppose it be kind of tricky. But um, slightly tricky issue. But he's, um, you know, he, he's doing wonderful things, but prevention's not his area. Uh, Bill Gates does support prevention activities, but generally um, high-tech things like... Um, vaccines, uh, things called microbicides, which are like vaginal gels that are supposed to, as yet non-existent, but some of them are in trials. So he tends to take a technical approach to this, and what he thinks of what I do, I don't know. So. Next one. Yep, please there. Edward Davy, LSE. You, you didn't talk much about antiretroviral drugs, and I welcome your thoughts on that, in particular the debate about generics, etc. Right. Um, yeah, I, um, a, there's a lot of discussion about antiretroviral drugs, and I'm really not an expert on that. Um, it seems as though when the drugs get introduced, it's not clear that they have much effect on the structure of the epidemic itself. I mean... HIV rates were already very low in the U.S., lower, not very low, but lower, by the time antiretrovirals were introduced, and they did not change behavior. I mean, they, you know, they did not lead to further prevalence decline. In fact, there may have been a sort of uptick. And I don't think um, people are expecting them to have much different effect in Africa other than that. Um, the debate about generics is an ongoing struggle. There are many people who can talk about it much more in, in a much more informed way, but I think... Um, yeah, I think the prices are coming down and more and more people are getting treatment, which is great. But there's a long way to go. At the back there. Yeah, middle of the back row, that's right. Hello, I'm Michael Borowitz. I'm from the Department for International Development. Hi, Helen. Hi. Um, first, I just wanted to say that there's um, a long history of thinking about 
currency, but not really for AIDS, but more for sexually transmitted diseases. And that in 1949, Sidney Clark wrote an article about the social pathology of syphilis in South Africa, talking about concurrency, about people working in the mines and having multiple partners. So this is not necessarily new information, particularly in sexually transmitted diseases. And the second point I would make is that within epidemics in Africa, as you say before, there's diversity. So that to say that it's only about concurrency seems to me insufficient. And just to give an example, because I was recently in Zambia, is that in rural Zambia, um, in the northern part of Zambia, for example, it is largely hot spots associated with truck drivers and sex workers. So to say within a single country, you have multiple epidemics going on. And so although the concurrency part provides the epidemiological base for rapid spread, it doesn't mean that prevention does not require interventions with high-risk groups. Um, I never said it didn't, actually. <laughs> um, I absolutely right. Um, I'm not saying stop doing the things that are getting done, but recognize that the vast majority of people who are at risk there um, are becoming infected in other ways, according to modeling that comes from Zambia and, and other places, too. I mean, I think this is, you know, there's also results from Uganda suggesting the same thing, that most transmission is taking place in ordinary discordant couples. Um, not to say that one should ignore... Um, high-risk groups or truck drivers and so on, of course they're at risk, but we know that. And there are many programs, there could be more, but there are already many programs to address that. In terms of Sidney Clark's work, yes, he did describe that in the migrant labor system and so on. However, um, my reading of that was that a lot of what he described was really based on something which suggested that the migrant labor system itself had kind of created these patterns of behavior and that a lot of what was putting people at risk of syphilis was going into the cities, I mean, going into these cities or going into the mines and having sex with prostitutes. He didn't really write about, uh, he talked about people having multiple partners and the migrant labor system exacerbating that, but he didn't talk about these overlapping, ongoing, intimate relationships, which um, you don't really need um, migrant labor for. In fact, when people have actually looked and compared HIV rates among migrants and non-migrants in various rural areas of Africa, they actually don't find much difference between the HIV rates among the migrants and the non-migrants, men and, and women. And so it doesn't seem to be, um, it seems as though there's an existing pattern. The migrants are introducing the virus into this social ecology pre-existing, so to speak, um, and that's sort of an extension of what Kark was saying, I think. Back row there. Uh, my name is Malik. I'm a student at LSE. Uh, uh, in, in the limited budget, you know, our uh, HIVS budget is limited for all the government. And um, there is increasing expenditure as far as, you know, uh, care and support activities are concerned. And this whole, whole dimension, the new dimension of concurrency care, can add up to the budget within the prevention program, which is which is getting constrained day by day. What are your views on that? My views on will this make could cause more strain on the budget? Actually, it's pretty cheap. It's just information. It's air. I mean, it's it's not. Uh, it doesn't seem like it would cost that much to tell people. If you don't really. I mean, there, it, the information needs to get out there, but it's just information. I mean, back in the 1960s, which was kind of the last time that helping the poor was really fashionable, it sort of went out of fashion for a while for whatever reason, 
Um, you know, helping the poor didn't just mean giving them material things like drugs and mosquito nets and stuff. It also meant, in addition to that, um, helping people with ideas and, um, you know, Peace Corps volunteers would sit in villages and quote Gandhi and Paolo Freire to people and stuff. And the idea was to help people understand what was keeping them poor and what, um, you know, recognize how much power they did have. And I think that that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about here is, I mean, we must continue to do the things we're doing, but this element is missing, I think. And somebody down here afterwards, but there's one up the back there. Hi. Um, I just want to say who you are, please. Uh, Timothy Hallett from Imperial College, London. Uh, I just wanted to say, raise a, say something the theoretical and then ask how you think it relates to program, programming. And that um, concurrency, it's a very hard thing to isolate um, from other things in behavior. When modelers uh, are turning up the dial of concurrency, it's impossible to do that without changing other things like, like heterogeneity, variance, timing of partnerships, duration of partnerships. And the, the theory, I mean, it's, it's not, not a done deal in, in the theoretical modeling world that concurrency was isolated in that paper by Martina Morris and that it's an important thing. In fact, of all the things that, that do matter, regression analysis shows that actually things related to the individual tend to still come out to be, to be more important. And that led me to think that, so maybe the reason why... It depends on the model you use, doesn't sure, it? Sure, but, <laughs> but, but maybe concurrency is the reason why the epidemic spread in a particular pattern and why the zero grazing campaign in Uganda was particularly effective. But at the end of the day, the message is still have fewer partners, isn't it? So yeah. what, what do these theoretical considerations add? Yeah, I guess the thing is that um, I'm sort of against directive programs that simply um, suggest people have fewer partners without telling them why. Because most people, as I said, already have few partners. They're faithful women. They're you know, men with two girlfriends or something like that. They don't have lots of partners. But they don't realize that they're, you know, all they have to do is touch this hot concurrency network and it will um, put them at huge risk. Um, they think when you say have fewer partners, they're saying, you know, don't go to bar, bar girls and stay away from truck drivers and don't be a prostitute. That was the message that I think for a long time people got. I think people are beginning to get the idea that you can get this from anybody now. Um, and that's, it's changed a lot. But I think that this would help people. When I explain this to people um, generally in Africa, everyone from sort of illiterate teenagers through an interpreter to, um, I was talking about it to a woman who's run the WHO program somewhere in Africa and has worked on AIDS for 20 years, and she was blown away by it. She said, oh, wow, that's what's happening. And um, the reaction there is, I mean, just, just try it. I'm not saying it's the answer to everything, but it would be worth um, telling people because, you know, you don't want to point fingers at people and imply, you know, you have too many partners or something like that because most people at risk don't. We have four questions waiting. One here and three up there. Ready. Uh, I'm Laura Niada from the University of Westminster. I have a question which is a bit out of track, actually. Um, the WHO has recently updated the figures on the um, uh, prevalence and the new infections uh, of HIV. Um, I was reading that uh, you kind of foretold 
this, um, this I don't know, mistake in, in the estimates. Uh, I don't know, this was a, a senior editor in the weekly standard, I think Coldwell or something like that, who was quoting you as one of the people who uh, criticized from the beginning <laughs> WHO. I don't know if you have any <coughs> comments at all about this. And they criticized what? Uh, the figures collected and the... The figures and in the, in the, in the adjustment. I think, well, what... Shall we, shall we explain what that means? Because I'm not yeah. sure everybody will understand. There, was a, there has recently been a very dramatically revised uh, version of the international HIV AIDS rates uh, from UNAIDS. And UNAIDS says this is because they have refined their methods. And um, Helen has other views on the matter. I don't, I don't have other okay. views. Absolutely, I think they did refine their methods. They actually refined them quite a long time ago, and I'm not quite sure why they announced this now, because for quite a long time they've been um, citing figures not that different from the ones that they revised. I mean, I think what's important about these new figures is not that there are 33 million people infected instead of 40 million people infected. I don't think that means that much. But what's interesting about it to me uh, is that it really focuses us uh, on what it should refocus prevention efforts because it now really is clear that what's going on in this region of East and Southern Africa is qualitatively very different from what's going on in the rest of the world. I think for a long time there were these predictions made based on uh, maybe these slightly larger statistics than, than, had actually, than were actually turned out to be true. There were predictions made that, that places like China and India and um, other places were facing an epidemic on the scale of Africa's, East and Southern Africa in particular, and it was just a matter of time before that happened. And I think that people have known for a long time that that's probably not going to happen, that the epidemic will remain confined to so-called high-risk groups for um, the foreseeable future. And I think now that we recognize that, we have to make more of an effort to reach out to those particular high-risk groups in those places and in Africa too. But, you know, essentially um, that's really important and we're not that good at doing that. I mean, um, there are some exemplary programs in harm reduction and condom promotion for sex workers and so on, but they're not nearly um, as widespread as they need to be. And what I hope will happen as a result of these figures is that they will be expanded, actually, and that we'll also recognize that something weird is happening in Africa and that needs to be addressed differently, too. So I'll give the back there on, the, on my right. Yes. Hello, um, my name's Nina Dolajalova. I'm an LSE student. Um, I was interested in what you were saying about um, the need for information. Is it on? Okay. Yes, the need, okay, the need for information and um, relating that to the campaigns on smoking. Um, now, it seems that, I mean, just from a lot of my friends' points of view, people have stopped smoking because they've been banned from smoking in public places mm -hmm. or, you know, you can't buy cigarettes now until you're 18. And those are issues of social control as alongside information, which doesn't fit comfortably into the whole area of HIV and AIDS. And so I don't know how to phrase it as a question, but it's yeah. more about how well the smoking example actually does provide yeah. an optimistic note. I know, I know what you're saying and that a lot of people... But the thing is that, that um, those government steps had to come from somewhere. In other words, the government ignored the smoking issue for a long time. And they were justified in doing that because they were taking lots of cash from the tobacco companies and so on. And they themselves lied to themselves about how dangerous it really was. So in other words... Um, they now understand 
their legislation is a result of their own personal understanding of how dangerous and destructive smoking really is, number one. Number two, there have been studies of smoking cam- anti-smoking campaigns. And when they're aggressive, when they're good, they work. And there was a wonderful one in Florida that I was looking at. Um, it was just amazing that, that reduced teen smoking rates by, I don't know, 60% or something like that, or uptake of smoking. And so you can see these effects. In fact, there was very briefly, I remember when I was a kid in the 60s, for some reason the FCC, there was some reason why they were smoking, they were smoking ads on TV, cigarette ads on TV, and then for fairness or balance or something, the FCC insisted that there also be anti-smoking ads. So for a couple of years, there were anti-smoking ads, and smoking rates fell during that time. Then the tobacco company said, uh-oh. And so they agreed to uh, a ban on cigarette ad- advertising on TV. And when that happened, the anti-smoking campaign ads were pulled as well, and smoking rates rose again. <laughs> They're smart. So, Justin. Hi, thanks. Uh, Justin Parkhurst from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, kind of my, my kind of question or comment follows from that quite well. As someone who kind of works on HIV prevention generally, one of the things that I do find frustrating sometimes is the reduction of HIV prevention to information provision. And I mean, and you said it's a social movement and how do we get social movements to happen. You also pointed out at the beginning that for 20 years we've been telling people about it and it hasn't worked. So I'm a little bit cautious about your your belief that telling people it's concurrency rather than abstinence now rather than condoms will work because telling them they should abstain didn't lead to abstinence and telling people to use condoms all the time doesn't necessarily lead to it. Although I agree with the logic behind the argument very much. What, what worries me is that very often in the, in the political realm, the debates go back and forth on ideological grounds around should we be promoting abstinence or promoting condoms and not engaging with this notion of telling people what to do rarely gets them to do it. And what often falls off the agenda are dealing with the the actual drivers of sexual behavior, what's often called in literature structural drivers. Um, So what is it about people's situation that leads to them having three sexual partners at the same time? Uh, Is it that young women are in transactional sexual relations? Is it because it's the socially acceptable thing to do? Is it the only way a a migrant laborer will be accepted in a community and so on? If we don't engage with those things, do you really believe that just telling people concurrency is the answer and here's why? Um, or do you see it as part of a larger program? I can't prove it, but here's what I can say. Promoting condoms led to increases in condom use. So people often do respond to messages actually more than, more than you think. Um, the condoms didn't work because people weren't using them consistently enough, but condom use rates have soared in Africa. So in a sense, um, you know, these camp- there's some hope that you could get the behavior. And the thing is with partner reduction, you don't actually need that much partner reduction to get a pretty big payoff in HIV prevention. You don't need 100% monogamy universal to get a significant reduction because all you need to do is break up the superhighway that's spreading the virus a little bit. And people, as long as they're in their sort of units, um, then, you know, the virus won't be able to spread. It won't get any traction in there um, if if you break it up. That's sort of more mathematical modeling stuff, which... Martina Morris can talk more articulately about than me. But um, I agree with you that simply telling people reduce your partners is not the answer. I mean, that's really what I'm trying to say, is that people need to see that little film, that little movie, that cartoon or whatever it is that um, Stuart Parkinson made. And then what I predict would happen, I mean, even when I talk about this at cocktail parties, people go off in the corner and start talking about it. And the other conversations about things like gender inequality, like poverty, like um, inequalities in wealth and, and how that shapes p- 
people's lives, those issues begin to come up naturally and begin to get discussed. And um, you can't change those overnight. And in many places, I don't know, in Uganda and in Zimbabwe, you saw very little change in those structural factors with a change in even though NHIV rates fell anyway. So I don't think you necessarily need to change those things. I mean, it would be great if you could, but it's a long time coming. But to make people aware of them and to get people talking about them is part of the battle, I think. And this is all speculative. I admit that. I don't have, you know, proof of anything. But where you see HIV decline, you see a lot of conversation. You see a lot of argument and about just those kinds of things. So. Yeah, well, my question, uh, my name is Giulia Ferrari, and I'm at the RSE. Um, my question actually ties into the previous two and actually overlaps considerably with uh, Justin's uh, right now. But um, I think, in a way, in looking at these structural factors, um, relating also to um, the example of smoking, um, is, I mean, um, lessons can still be drawn even if the two worlds seem so apart in the sense that it's just a matter of perhaps um, flipping uh, the perspective a bit um, because structural factors, in fact, are very often um, uh, highly relevant in the transmission of the epidemic, of course, as anybody working in the field knows. And very often, uh, the only way for a girl to get through school uh, is to provide um, herself the means uh, by resorting to uh, these um, kind of interactions and, and these networks in a way. And so the same way as beforehand um, socializing around a beer in a pub was conducive to uh, smoking, uh, having access to these networks uh, nowadays for these people does provide the means to achieve their goals. And if these uh, structures aren't changed, um, then um, these the, a sort of a steady decrease in the transmission probably won't happen. Well, it and did happen in Uganda. There was no change in poverty rates and so on, and there was a 60% decline in HIV exactly. infection rates. And I'm not saying that if you could change those things, it wouldn't vastly improve people's lives. But I wouldn't be too pessimistic about uh, the fact that people, once they grasp their own situation, they're the only ones who can really change that thing sure. anyway. I mean, they're the only ones who can do it. We can't really do it from outside. We can pump all sorts of aid money in, and God knows what it'll get spent on. But, um, you know, uh, they really need to be in control of yeah, this. Yeah, I'm not saying that poverty itself is necessarily the element. I'm talking about these structures, these relations that are deeply embedded in people's perception. Um, the perceptions, well, I think the perceptions can change, okay? I mean, in gay men, for example, in the 1970s believed that marriage was the most horrible institution. Um, I mean, it was, it was um, you know, for, um, that, you, that you can imagine. I mean, it was, they were adamantly opposed to it. And now they're fighting for their right to it. I mean, cultures change a lot. Think of how your parents behave towards each other compared to the way, um, you know, people now behave towards their partners and so on. Um, the gender relations change radically, sometimes in a very short space of time, and they change. Who knows why they change? But um, I don't. I don't think it's. Again, I don't think it's the whole answer, but I think it's worth a try. We have time for just one or two more questions. So here's one. Edith um, Crimmins, Imperial College. It's not on. Edith Crimmins, Imperial College. Um, 
I'd just like to say that um, some caution is needed when looking at concurrency data alone without taking into consideration two other factors which are frequency of sex and frequency of protected sex because say a man has five partners in the last year he may only have had sex with each of those partners once or it, each sex act may have been protected in which case if he's infected there's no chance of transmitting the virus and if he's uninfected there's, he's at zero risk of acquiring the virus so I just think you need to be careful when looking at it in isolation Yeah, I think, I think frequency of sex is actually really important and not very well measured although there was an interesting ODA study when DFID was called ODA which kind of looked at that in Uganda some anthropologists kind of went around interviewing people all over the country and that was one of the questions they asked it's kind of an interesting study if you're glad to see it, it was standing in Kiseko in the authors um, I was just wondering if you looked at all at the connection between conflict and the transmission rates of HIV, especially in Africa, looking at rape as mm. one of the main problems in, in many African countries as transmitting HIV or making people more vulnerable to, to getting it. If you yeah. looked at yeah, there is there are some um, studies of that. It's, it's tricky. It seems as though, in terms of conflict, that conflict actually tends to break up the sexual networks that promote the spread of the virus. And where you see, like, for example, HIV rates were measured very carefully in Congo between 1997 and 2003, between which time there was an outbreak of war involving the most horrific epidemic of rape I think that's been ever seen. And HIV rates fell during that time. Um, and um, everyone sort of expected that HIV rates would soar in Rwanda after the genocide. In fact, they fell. Um, ditto Mozambique, HIV rates soared after the war there ended. So it's a kind of tricky thing. It's not that um, it's not that people don't become infected through rape. They certainly do. But be partly because it's kind of a one-off encounter, it may not be as efficient as the kind of ongoing, long-term, intimate relationships that people have. A person who's very good on this subject and has looked at um, rape, especially in South Africa, is called Rachel Jukes. If you read her papers, she thinks that um, the vast majority of transmission in South Africa is in these intimate, long-term relationships. And there's a lot of coercion in those relationships. So there's, it's not... Um, but it's not the kind of stranger rape or soldiers coming to a village and raping everything, everyone. It's a different kind of thing. If I can add something to what Helen's just said as a general point, one of the things about the HIV-AIDS epidemic is how little is really known about a lot of things that people claim they know about. One of them is that issue. The other one is um, the relationship between military forces and HIV rates. We did a review here a couple of years ago, and it, it was not at all clear what that relationship was. And the other one is the relationship between poverty and HIV rates, again, which is absolutely unclear. There's lots of things that people claim they know about HIV. They don't. There was one more question, I think. No, there was Yes, oh, there you are. And that's probably the last question, so let's hear from you. Hi, um, Rachel Briggs from SOAS. I was wondering what your take on the relationship between religion and HIV is. Um, you mentioned in certain conservative societies in the Middle East there's been generations of social control on women so they will not pass it on. Um, do you think in certain African societies 
If it's abstinence or nothing, do you think the rates will go up or down, whereas women are being marginalized possibly more than men? I think abstinence, <coughs> abstinence has not been terribly successful. Actually, the king of Swaziland, in a matter of desperation, I think, in 19, uh, 2002 or something, tried to get, and the king and the president of Kenya tried to do the same thing, to try to get all the young people to stop having sex for some period of time and just said, you know, please stop. And actually, girls in Swaziland were supposed to wear little tassels that said, you know, stay away. And the HIV rate continued to soar, actually, because it's not young people's behavior that's spreading this. It's the whole network of, 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 of people. It's, the young people aren't doing anything sort of radically peculiar or having tons of partners or anything. They're just doing what young people often do. And, um, but the problem is the network they become attached to. And that's the thing you have to address, and you can't really address that through abstinence because it's there already. Okay, a um, couple of things before we finish. First of all, don't remember the rest of this lecture series because it's a good one, and you have a piece of paper which you should look at. Don't forget. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, did I really? <laughs> Don't forget. Thank you. Right. Um, the second thing is, do I see... I don't see Paul Collier in the audience here. No, he was supposed to be here, is not Right, okay. I just want to make sure... I, I, yeah? Thank you. Are you Michaela wrong? Thank you, Michaela, for telling me that, because I was looking. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry he's got flu. Uh, that reminds me, one of the lectures in the series is on, of course, pandemic influenza, so... <laughs> That's, that's extremely important, that one. The second thing to say is that um, Helen is not going to sit around and stand around and chat now here. She's going to be downstairs signing books. And if you would like to buy a book, then you can have it signed. And you'll probably chat to Helen then about other things that you might want to raise. Um, and finally, and most gratefully, Helen, thank you very, very much for coming here and for talking tonight. <laughs>